Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofar sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and there is good news to report. Chris is nearing his defense date, so we should soon be rejoined by a newly minted member of the Historical Guild, and it appears that the schedule is once again clear of interruptions. Today, we're going to get into some of the secondary research that I've been doing for the book, but instead of the usual discussion or interview format, you're going to get a narrative history of the Gestapo. So sit back, curl up with a warm drink, or bundle up for a bracing fall stroll, and get ready for story time. I'm going to cover how police can go from a liberal institution to an instrument of power in three easy steps, but please, treat it as a cautionary tale, not an instruction manual. I'll go over how a police force like the Gestapo can be created from existing democratic institutions, how it can escape government oversight, and how weakening bureaucratic checks and balances that maintain the separations of power allows authoritarian politicians to create institutions which maintain their regime. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. This is one of my favorite subjects, so without further ado, let's begin. So why do people make a big deal out of the Gestapo? Well, the Gestapo was infamous for four different roles in the regime. In Northern and Western Europe, they were the counter-espionage and counter-intelligence wing of security services in the occupied territories. So all those stories you will have heard about resistance members being hunted and tortured will have involved the Gestapo at some point in the chain of custody. It was also in this capacity as rear echelon security services that Gestapo personnel became the leaders of the Einsatzgruppen responsible for mass executions and genocide in Poland and the Soviet Union. The closely related role of fighting counterinsurgency campaigns, the so-called Banditbekämpfung or bandit fighting operations, involved the murder of civilians and collective reprisals for partisan attacks. Entire villages would be cleared and sent to Germany as slave labor when the Einsatzkommando created so-called security dead zones behind the front. The Gestapo also managed Jewish policy and the deportation of Europe's Jews to concentration camps as part of the Holocaust under the auspices of the Reich Main Security Office because of this role in security policing. All of this was after 1939, though, or 1938 if we count the first test cases arresting potential political opponents in Austria. But the Gestapo had already garnered much of its infamy before the Third Reich became an empire in pursuit of conquest. The Gestapo became the rear area security for conquered territory because it was the political police within Germany. That's how they became the executive agency responsible for enforcing Jewish policy. But, I hear you ask, where did they come from? How did they gain this unlimited arbitrary power over life and death? 
Now, Chris and I have looked at the different ways that the Gestapo exercised that power according to circumstances. But Lord Acton's observation that absolute power corrupts absolutely would behoove us to understand how such an organization could come into being and grow to such untrammeled heights of power. It wasn't as if the Nazis simply showed up and did away with law entirely or to do whatever they wanted. Think about if something like that happened tomorrow. Even with all of the enormous pressure on the political system that brought the Nazis to power, such a thing would have been as unthinkable then as it would be today. These things take time. So, this leads us to the question, where did the Gestapo come from? Now, if you really want to get into the details, which of course is what we do here on the podcast, you have to go back to the 1920s. I'll spare you the details because we're talking about the high mysteries of police administration law, which, uh, although I can assure you is more interesting than it may sound at first blush, may not bear too close of an examination. The short version is that the Democratic Weimar Republic had a political police, so the Gestapo were already building upon an existing structure. Those of you from Canada or the United States will be familiar with different levels of federal, provincial, or municipal police that you might encounter. The Gestapo emerged from the democratic political police operating in each of the different German states. As you will recall, the Weimar Republic had an incredibly turbulent birth. Between the breakaway republics of 1919, the Putsch and the accompanying uprising in the Rhineland in 1920, uh, the Nazis' attempted overthrow in 1923, the upswing in political radicalism which stemmed from the French occupation in 1924, then multiple cases of politically motivated espionage on behalf of foreign powers, and then finally the rise of street fighting as the favored form of sorting out your political differences during the Great Depression. It should come as little surprise that the states each had a section dedicated to politically motivated crime within the broader state police structure. The new social democratic government had made good on their promise to dissolve the hated imperial political police when they came to power in 1918, but they soon recognized that it was a necessary evil in the fervor of the interwar era and reconstituted Department 1A hidden away in the Berlin Police Presidium. Now this matters because the Berlin Police Presidium acted as the state police structure for all of Prussia, and Prussia, as the largest and most populous German state, set legal precedent for everywhere else in Germany. So the developments here in Prussia served as the blueprint for the rest of the country. Department 1A soon grew into a sort of central coordinating role, managing the manhunt and counterintelligence duties of different state political police branches. Up until 1933, the Weimar political police operated under the limits imposed by the Constitution and the police administration law of 1931. Of course, all of this changed when the Nazis came to power. The reorganization of political police gradually transformed this structure into an independent agency totally removed from ministerial oversight. Now, that last part there, removed from ministerial oversight, that's a big deal and it bears some explanation. So in government, at least a liberal constitutional democracy or a republic, power is always checked by someone responsible to someone or something else, some other institution. 
but if we set aside sort of this general philosophical principle for something specific that we can sink our teeth into, uh, power is distributed to different departments and ministries who are then responsible for a certain sphere of life. And then within that set of responsibilities, they will have a portfolio with different sub-departments and directorates and agencies who sort of plan and execute policy. Now, Department 1A, political police in the Weimar Republic, they were a creature of the Berlin Police Presidium. And the Berlin Police Presidium answered to the state police administration. And they, in turn, were under the purview of the Prussian Minister of the Interior. So this is all nice and neat. And there's someone in charge who has power to tell off the police when they've been naughty and tinker with their policies as necessary. Now, you might expect that the Nazis simply formed a government and decided they needed an instrument of power. And you'd be partially correct, actually. The suspension of the Weimar Constitution under the decree for protection of people and state, Chris and I discussed this in the first episode of our series on the concentration camps, that decree gave the police practically unlimited power during a protracted state of emergency by suspending the Constitution, which in effect abolished citizens' guaranteed rights. You also have to remember that the Nazi seizure of power struck a resounding blow that shook the government and the civil service to its very foundation. Anyone with the necessary political credentials and wherewithal was free to gather up the ministries, presidencies, governorships, and administrative appointments and reforge them into a new arrangement of powers however they saw fit. The Gestapo emerged as an independent agency out of the political intrigue over who would wield the enormous power that this state of affairs afforded to whoever could seize control of the police. So, let us introduce our three actors. First, we have Hermann Goering, Minister President of Prussia and Prussian Minister of the Interior, Governor of Prussia, Reich Minister of Aviation, Reich Minister of Forestry, Plenipotentiary of the Four-Year Plan, President of the Reichstag, and Air Marshal of the Luftwaffe. And that's all before the war. So yeah, that whole thing I was saying about gathering titles, I wasn't kidding. Anyway, Goering was quite literally a larger-than-life figure. A bombastic World War I fighter ace of noble extraction, he was a character among characters. Part of the Prussian nobility, he had taken over command of the Red Baron's famous fighter squadron during the First World War, the Flying Circus, after von Richthofen met his untimely end. After the war was over, he developed a morphine addiction from injuries he sustained during the Nazis' 1923 attempted coup, and represented the movement among the upper classes. As a patron of the arts, when the Nazis took power in 1933, he developed a much caricatured penchant for outlandishly extravagant tastes and throwing what, to be fair, sound like some amazing parties. So his official uniform as Reich Marshal of the Luftwaffe was pure white and included a jewel-encrusted marshal's baton. And, of course, there are no end of scandalous stories about him from other leading Nazis. The Stuka ace, Ernst Udet, met Goering twice, and professes that on the first occasion he was wearing a medieval hunting costume, practicing archery with his doctor. Uh, the second incident actually involved a red toga with a gold fastening clasp. Albert Speer, meanwhile, recounts, of course, the situation I've talked about before, where Goering received him on official business wearing a velvet smoking jacket and playing pocket pool 
with a handful of uncut gemstones while he was high on morphine. His parties at Karen Hall, as you might imagine, were the stuff of legend, on par with the salacious sort of debauchery that you get about the Ancien Regime nobles from the Grub Street press prior to the French Revolution. It may not surprise you that, as a result of this lavish lifestyle, he also became enormously fat. He also had a smile that, no word of a lie, looks exactly like the one on the Grinch who stole Christmas. In fact, actually, uh, I just looked at the publication dates. It may have even inspired the character design. Uh, Dr. Seuss, I have a, a collection of his political cartoons, uh, and he frequently characterized Nazi leaders. So the Grinch came out in the 1950s after the war. So yeah, you know, there you go. Cultural history in the making. The Grinch may come from Hermann Goering. Uh, but I digress. In the time-honored tradition of power-worshipping egomaniacs everywhere, he also had pet lions. The grim side of all of this revelry is that it was financed through the systematic pillage of Europe for the narcissistic self-indulgence of a man who stands as a towering symbol for the Nazis' excesses of power and faux morality. It may be tempting to laugh at someone like Goering, but focusing on his foibles this way doesn't do him justice as an enormously skilled political operator. After all, he became the president and governor of Germany's most powerful state in spite of what we could charitably describe as considerable vices, thanks to his prodigious abilities. The salon life gave him a polished diplomatic charm, paired with a savage wit which endeared him to those who made his acquaintance, even members of the prosecution of Nuremberg. Combined with his guile and his utter ruthlessness, he represented a political force to be reckoned with, possessed with the remarkable ability to impose his will through whatever means were most expedient. It was in this role that we find him as the man who founded the Gestapo. His rival was the career civil servant and prominent Nazi politician, Dr. Wilhelm Frick. Frick came from a solidly middle-class background of the educated bourgeoisie, the so-called Bildungsbürgertum, who filled the ranks of a German officialdom. The fourth child of a Protestant schoolteacher from Bavaria, Frick had taken up the study of law at Heidelberg, which would roughly equate to being a Harvard lawyer. Lucky enough to enter the public service before the war, he was already established by the time the war youth generation of SS academics were being politicized during the radical student politics of the 1920s. Frick's talents had paved the way for a steady rise through the civil service prior to the First World War, at a time when considerable cutbacks meant that that path was no longer guaranteed. By the end of the war, he found himself in the senior ranks of the Bavarian police administration. The short-lived Soviet Republic of Munich then won his support for ethno-nationalist politics, and he stood for election on behalf of the Nazis, making leaps and bounds through the mid-20s to head its parliamentary faction. He parlayed this into an appointment as Minister of the Interior of Thuringia in 1930, the first minister to be appointed from the Nazi party. When Franz von Papen approached Hitler as the compromise candidate for chancellor in 1933, the price was including Goering and Frick in the cabinet, with Frick holding the crucial Ministry of the Interior. This put a Nazi in charge of all domestic policing, but whatever Frick's attitudes about the Judeo-Bolshevik menace or the humiliation of Versailles as the Nazis saw it, 
he remained a career civil servant and a lawyer at heart. There must be rules and oversights, forms must be filled, and reports must be filed. Nazi though he may have been, Frick was still a Beamter, a representative of the prächtige deutsche Bürokratie. The laws might need to change, but laws there would be. To take some poetic license, the polar opposite of the unbound ego that was Goering. Narratives are always much more pleasant when they fit neatly into familiar tropes that way, aren't they? All joking aside, Frick intended to pursue further centralization of power in the Reich Ministry of the Interior. This had been a long-standing goal in the Federal Civil Service, who wanted to strip the states of certain responsibility. Without going into too much detail, ministries of the interior are one of those jewels in the crown of state. All the fun stuff happens there. Policing, national security, elections, public administration, and immigration. Basically, they regulate the relationship between state and society in a country. And if you're a state, at the lower level of government, you're very eager to retain a hand in those powers. But if you're the national ministry, it quickly becomes very frustrating to negotiate who has what responsibilities and which powers you have infringe on the state government's jurisdiction. Better to concentrate that power in the hands of someone who can see the bigger picture and do away with all the confusion, right? Or so Frick thought. The Federal Civil Service had discussed simply centralizing the national and state ministries of the interior into a single Reich Ministry of the Interior since the mid-1920s. And now, they had a very sympathetic leader in Frick who had come to power under the Nazi mandate to deregulate and unleash power against enemies of the state. The thing is that Goering, Minister-President of Prussia and Minister of the Interior of Prussia, very much liked having a hand in the control of emergency services and public administration of the most powerful state in Germany. And now that he had that control, he didn't very much fancy handing it over, especially the police. He liked the police so much that he had appointed his confidant, Rudolf Diels, head of a special commission for fighting communism. Then he brought the paramilitary party organizations on board as auxiliary police and set about throwing political opponents who might threaten the regime into concentration camps. By no means was he going to hand over all that power, the power to effectively set policy for the rest of the country to anyone, at least not without a fight. And a fight is what he got. Before we get to that, though, let's take a step back for a moment. Way back in April, right after the Nazis came to power, Goering had established a special commission for fighting communism and put his confidant, Rudolf Diels, in charge. Now, as I said before, part and parcel of the Nazis' political promises had been that they would do away with the system, the term of abuse used by the right to express their frustration with all those pesky checks on power. The promise was that the Nazis would get to grips with Germany's problems without the system getting in the way. The biggest threat in the Nazis' eyes was communism, so Goering actually broke off the department that dealt with politically motivated crime and reformed it as its own agency. The Law for the Establishment of a Secret State Police Office, better known as the first Gestapo law, was that first step in transforming the police into an instrument of unlimited state power. A secret state police office, Geheimenstaatspolizeiamts, was established in Berlin, and everybody who had been part of Department 1A were just rolled over to become the members of the new secret state police, the Gestapo. The law also made other police agencies subordinate to the Gestapo, 
and it gave this agency the power to demand assistance in their area of jurisdiction. Now, to ensure none of that cumbersome bureaucracy tried to get in the way by saying things like, you can't beat prisoners, or you can't hold people indefinitely without trial, you know, quibbles, Goering made the Gestapo directly responsible to him as Prussian Minister of the Interior. This cut out all the middlemen. But, if we step back to where we were, Frick intended to absorb the state ministries into the Reich Ministry of the Interior. That included the political police. Goering answered this threat to his power with the second Gestapo law. If Frick was going to grab the ministry, Goering decided he would just move all the interesting bits somewhere beyond his reach. And since he was both the Minister of Interior and Head of State for Prussia as Minister-President, Goering could do just that. The second Gestapo law took the new police agency and made it directly responsible to him as Minister-President of Prussia rather than Minister of the Interior. Now, this may sound confusing, but really it's three simple steps. First, Goering created the agency and put it under his direct control as Minister of Interior. Second, Frick tried to nab it by absorbing the ministry. And then third, Goering just moved it under his direct control as Minister-President. It's a shell game of follow the agency, only now it's somewhere that Frick can't get it. The thing is, ministerial oversight was lost in the shuffle. That's important. Goering dissolves, and I quote, organizational connection with district government or state police administration under this new law. As I said before, the usual order of things is to have agencies report to some kind of institution who oversees their actions on behalf of whoever is head of government. Now, the Gestapo was not yet free of checks on its power. In theory, the judiciary still held final say over punishing transgressions of the law. But de facto, the Gestapo was already an independent agency reporting to the head of state government, and in practice, the decree for protection of people in state was allowing them to circumvent the courts. The thing is, the police were only one player in the concentration camp system at this point. The camps afforded immense power to whoever administered them, and the social revolutionary wing of the party, under the direction of Ernst Röhm, was still one of the prime contenders. As commander of the SA, the beer hall brawlers who were notorious for beating their political opponents into silence, he had the muscle to carry it off, both figuratively and literally. The growing power this afforded to the radical SA concerned both Frick and Goering, to say nothing of Hitler and his conservative supporters. So everybody set aside their differences to hem in Rome and bring the concentration camp system back under state control. Chris and I have discussed this process in our series on the concentration camp system, so pop on over to episode one in that series if you want the blow-by-blow. But what's important here is how the fight over who would control the concentration camps paved the way for our third actor's rise to power. After all, Goering and Frick are still rivals. How can they find a compromise that limits the power of the SA and reigns in the concentration camps without giving in to one another? Enter Heinrich Himmler. Heinrich Himmler came from solid, middle-class respectability, a concept that he would ironically value highly throughout his life as he rose to command the security apparatus of the Third Reich, responsible for terrorizing Hitler's political enemies, repressing the occupied peoples of Europe, 
and carrying out the Holocaust. The eventual Reichsführer SS and Chief of German Police, Director of the Reich Security Main Office, and ultimately replacement for Frick as Reich Minister of the Interior, was the second of three sons born to a conservative middle-class Roman Catholic family. His family had hovered around the edges of power in Bavaria. In fact, his namesake, Heinrich, was a prince that his father had tutored. Studious, serious, earnest, and socially awkward in his youth, Himmler was a sickly child, and to compensate for his weak constitution, he started weight training and took a lively interest in current events, sports, and issues of religion and sex. He was too young to serve in combat during the First World War. The armistice was actually signed while he was still in a training battalion, and this in turn left him feeling robbed of the chance to prove himself, like many of the war youth generation who would go on to make up members of the SS elite. After completing a diploma in agronomy, he apprenticed on a farm before returning to studies in Munich, where he first met Ernst Röhm in the radical political circles that filled the city. Himmler joined the party and SA shortly thereafter. His career path as a party activist took off when the hyperinflation wiped out his parents' savings, and with it, his ability to pursue doctoral studies. He came up through the Strasser wing of the party, where his burgeoning anti-Semitism and interests in the occult bloomed into a full-blown blood-and-soil conspiracism. It was his connection with Ernst Röhm, though, that saw him rise to command the SS. Under Himmler's guidance, the SS soon evolved from Hitler's personal bodyguard to a sort of Praetorian guard wielding its own influence within the party, although officially it remained subordinate to the SA. By 1934, this made Himmler an ideal compromise candidate. The Reichsführer SS had been busy since the Nazi seizure of power, to say the least. Himmler had wrangled an appointment as commander of the Bavarian political police, promoting the Dachau model as an ideal arrangement of powers in the new state. Himmler, as head of political police in Munich, ensured the right people were put into the camps, while his dual capacity as Reichsführer SS gave him the power to discipline SS guards. In the chaotic revolutionary atmosphere, this sounded like a real improvement that carried the patina of respectable oversight. The reality was that it merely institutionalized the abuse that occurred in concentration camps, but the appearance of respectable oversight secured Himmler appointments in state after state as chief of political police. All the German states, in fact, save Prussia. So why did Goering and Frick settle on Himmler? Well, Frick and Himmler shared the goal of a unified national police service, and securing control of the Prussian Gestapo was an important first step that would bring all political police services under the control of a single man. From there, laws could be changed. So Frick liked Himmler for head of Gestapo. Goering saw someone that he could work with. Everyone shared the goal of limiting Rome's power, but Himmler especially wanted to establish the SS as an independent party organization. At this time, Rome was technically still his boss. Himmler, meanwhile, agreed to subordinate himself to Goering as minister-president. Goering was gambling that handing over direct control of political policing in Prussia would advance his influence more widely. Giving command of the Prussian Gestapo to someone who unified political police across the country and yet still reported to him under the framework of Gestapo laws would expand his control over the system. If the two could cooperate to solve Hitler's problem with Rome, 
both would be rewarded handsomely. Frick was gambling that he could use Himmler as the thin end of the wedge to unify police forces. Goering was satisfied with the reporting mechanism, but Frick, a career civil servant who was still thinking of the state of emergency as a temporary measure that would eventually return to an equilibrium of legal bureaucratic oversight, well, Frick saw Himmler as sort of the first harpoon in his white whale of a unified police force. Unifying any part of policing under a single man was the first real step that would give Frick a lever to move things towards a national-level police service. Both of them were gambling that they could control Himmler, and both of them lost big. Initially, all went according to plan. Himmler and his deputy Heydrich compiled a dossier on Rome and cooperated with Goering to eliminate him and the rest of SA leadership during the Night of the Long Knives. But Himmler used his central role in the execution of Rome to secure Hitler's support for unified police services, not under Frick, not under Goering, but under his loyal Heinrich. Goering rather lost interest in policing at this point. Hitler had rewarded him with an air force and responsibility for overseeing Germany's rearmament. So, content with his new toys, he left the showdown over who would control policing to his ally and signed a memo effectively delegating responsibility for the Gestapo to Himmler in fall 1934. Frick was not quite so willing to go quietly into the night, and he still had the resources of the Reich Ministry of the Interior behind him, so he at least was determined to continue the struggle for power. This takes us to our third major phase, when the Gestapo secured full independence from any outside oversight. So, let's set the stage. At this point, Frick still wants to centralize police under the Ministry of the Interior. And part of this is controlling the concentration camps. Himmler is equally keen on centralizing police, but he is envisioning what he refers to as an SS State Protection Corps. Essentially, all law enforcement and intelligence under the control of a central SS agency. If you want to know the larger vision, check out Viltz, and if you want the blow-by-blow -blow up to 1936, take a gander at Browder. But I digress. In spring 1935, while all of this is being sorted out, there is an important ruling in the administrative court system that stymies Frick's efforts. This is one of the more fascinating pieces of legal history in the Third Reich, and I have been searching for ages to try and find a citation of the court case proper, or even just a primary source text of the entire ruling. But even secondary research that looks at the case itself is hard to come by. So if you're looking for an MA thesis or a peer-reviewed journal article, this is your chance. And if you do have access to any of these sources, please let me know where I can find them so I can take a look for my own edification. Uh, but once again, I digress. The short version. The Gestapo's ability to detain people in concentration camps under the decree for protection of people and state infringed on the judiciary's jurisdiction to sanction punishments through the court system. In effect, this created overlapping competencies. But ah, said the Gestapo directives, protective custody in a concentration camp does not punish people. It prevents criminal acts before they take place, so there's no conflict here. Unzin countered the judiciary. Say what you want, but with the complaints of mistreatment and indefinite nature of detention, we demand the right to review Gestapo measures, especially protective custody. 
the whole mess landed in the Prussian administrative court system. The ruling was a landmark moment. The Prussian Supreme Administrative Court, who oversaw any challenge against the government as well as intramural disputes, issued the ruling. I don't know who filed the challenge, but I do know the court decided that the Gestapo constituted an independent branch of internal administration, which qualified it as, quote, a special authority. The courts, as a result, could not review any action in line with Gestapo directives. As of 2 May 1935, the Prussian Gestapo now officially operated beyond the rule of law, and it was the court system itself that had signed the writ. Things got very busy over the summer as Werner Best, the head of the Gestapo's legal section, made as much hay as he could out of the ruling. The laws governing criminal procedure and court constitutions were changed in June to enshrine prevention as grounds for arrest. This allowed the Gestapo to define what constituted a punishable offense and released them from their responsibility to report offenses to the state prosecutor if they took any preventative action. Essentially, the political police could now define what constituted a punishable offense and issue preventative sanctions without ever technically infringing on the judiciary. This is the legal equivalent of two kids in the back seat with one tormenting the other by hovering right next to them, saying, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. The driver of the car, in this unlikely metaphor, was Hitler, and he made no secret of the fact that he had favorites. With Himmler using protective custody to expand the Gestapo's power, Frick labored to rein him in through the state police administration. The police had existed in a never-never land administratively since Goering had dissolved their relationship with the district governors. Without getting bogged down in the details of Prussian administrative law, another more interesting than it sounds rabbit hole, the bottom line was that the reporting relationship had been left intentionally vague to keep state administrators from complaining about losing control of the police. The Gestapo were to, quote, conform to the wishes of district presidents insofar as they do not contradict Berlin. That was fine and dandy with Frick all through 1934, so long as it looked like a centralized police force was going to be under control of the Reich Ministry of the Interior. Now that Himmler was striking out on his own, especially after he had won this landmark case freeing him from any judicial checks, it was time to crack the whip. Too little, too late, to the wrong person. Hitler hated lawyers, not in a paying-to-get-my-building-permission sign sure is a pain in the ass, how-do-you-guys-make-so-much-money-administering-human-interaction kind of way. No, no. Hitler was more of a listen-to-your-personal-truth, burn-down-the-system-and-use-common-sense, which is to say whatever-I-happen-to-think-is-a-good-idea-today kind of lawyer-hater. So when Frick approached the Fuhrer with complaints from the district presidents that he should make sure the Gestapo was subject to the state administrative system, he was barking up the wrong tree, especially as he was making the case for reining in the guy who had just saved Hitler's bacon by, you know, purging all of his high-ranking opposition in the party through totally illegal executions. So no, Hitler did not think it was a good idea to centralize the police under a bureaucrat. Instead, he much preferred Himmler's idea to centralize all police, not just the Gestapo, under a new chief of German police. In October, Hitler agreed, 
and trumpeted themes that he had discussed at his meetings with Himmler at the Party Congress in Nuremberg that year. In spring 1936, the Third Gestapo Law codified everything that had been established so far. It set down, in law, the ministerial independence of the Gestapo, the judicial independence of the Gestapo, and its peculiar jurisdiction over prevention. The Gestapo's head of legal affairs, Best, celebrated the promulgation in the national journal German Law, identifying the new law as the basis for a coming Reich police. Frick was fighting a last-ditch effort at this point, but he saw one final chance to make a stand. If Himmler was going to become the chief of German police, he was going to do so under the auspices of the Reich Ministry of the Interior. Negotiations over the creation of a new chief of German police between the ministry and Himmler's deputy Heydrich revolved around the exact phrasing of his new title and what that would indicate about the nature of the relationship. Himmler was quite insistent that the title be associated with his capacity as leader of the SS, while Frick was looking for ways to bind the new position to his ministry. Several weeks and a few draft decrees later, both sides settled on Reichsführer SS and Chief of German Police within the Reich Ministry of the Interior. It appeared as though Frick had his victory. After all, he had re-established a ministerial relationship in the title, binding the RFSSUCDPIRMI through an alphabet soup of bureaucratic magic. But Himmler, thanks in no small part to Hitler's support, turned this connection to his advantage while jealously guarding the Gestapo's independence. When Himmler interacted with the SS, he was the Reichsführer, while his directives to the police and exchanges with Frick were assigned Reichsführer SS and Chief of German Police. Only when he went to other ministries did he use the additional within the Reich Ministry of the Interior to make his case on whatever he happened to be arguing that day on an equal footing. He immediately set out doing just this to assert the boundaries of his new fiefdom. Within a few short months, Frick, frustrated and utterly defeated, signed a memoranda that authorized all of Himmler's decisions as ministerial decisions. Instead of swallowing up the chief of German police, Himmler had made off with the Reich minister's power. The epilogue of the Gestapo's meteoric rise to power played out a few months later. It was another landmark moment that confirmed all that had occurred since 1933. The incident arose over a woman accused of high treason with connections to the Communist Party. Her case was heard by the Volksgerichthof in Berlin, the highest court in the country, the People's Court. The hanging judges who served on its bench were hardly opponents of the new regime, but they did jealously guard against encroachments on their jurisdiction, which was rewriting jurisprudence with a constant stream of rulings setting precedent in the new Germany. I, for one, would be interested to know whether the Gestapo's challenge was premeditated, or the reality of policing had simply changed so much by this point that it was an afterthought. Regardless, the judiciary came to loggerheads with the Gestapo when two officers rearrested the woman inside the courthouse after she was acquitted of charges. The judges, outraged, informed the Gestapo men that the People's Court was sovereign and they held no jurisdiction there. Delayed, but undeterred, 
the Gestapo simply released the woman and detained her in protective custody the following day. The judiciary immediately contacted the Gestapo demanding an explanation. What exactly did they think they were doing? The response used the same justification that had served to gradually carve out the organization's parallel jurisdiction all along. Prevention was not punishment. The woman had been acquitted of charges, but as a known subversive, she could not be left to roam freely. The Gestapo measures were preventative, ordered by Berlin, and as such, beyond the purview of the judiciary. The Minister of Justice, an old-fashioned ethno-nationalist and career civil servant, cut from the same cloth as Frick, backed down. The Gestapo, triumphant, circulated a memo shortly thereafter that reported the incident as a matter of, quote, fundamental importance. Liaisons were established within state prosecutor's office and directives affording Gestapo chiefs power of decision over which cases they should, quote, hand over to the justice system were issued over the next few months. The police had become a law unto itself. With that, I'd like to draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. I'd like to thank you for sticking with us and tuning in after what has been a long hiatus. It's been a busy fall here with everything going on, I have to say. I do have some good news to report, though. Chris is nearing his defense date, so bear him in mind, and we should have reason to celebrate in the near future. On my end, uh, actually, there's more good news. The first half of the book is going out for peer review. So this is a huge step, and uh, I have to say it has been a long slog to kind of fine-tune the prose into something that a wider audience would enjoy. But, uh, you know, with the benefit of some interesting subject matter, I, I do think that uh, I've managed to bring a human element into the writing that kind of brings it to life in a way that illustrates the bigger picture without, you know, sacrificing scholarly integrity or anything like that. We shall see what the reviewers say and when it will be available for all of you. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a big step and it's his first book, so we shall see how it goes. Bar barring further surprises and, uh, yeah, surprise deadlines, though, we should be getting back to a monthly release schedule. That said, I'd like to apologize once again for our lengthy absence, and uh, as always, hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>